So the analogy I've been using recently is men and women are together in the same rowboat. It's absolutely true that men designed the boat and built the boat to accommodate their needs. Absolutely. However, the boat is sinking and we're in it together. You could keep blaming men as we all drown, or we could get curious about how we're going to stop the boat from sinking and benefit all of us. Hello again. My name is Benoit Kim, and together we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. I hear this all the time. Men are afraid of intimate relationships. But is that really true according to research and empirical data? In today's conversation with a distinguished psychologist, you will learn about the modern psychology of men and how to thrive in an intimate relationship. Dr. Arun Weiss is an acclaimed author, speaker, psychologist, and consultant. With nearly 40 years of clinical practice and research, Arun has published four academic textbooks and trained hundreds of psychotherapists throughout his distinguished career. You can expect to learn about the psychology of men, the role of gender socialization, why men are afraid of women in intimate relationships, how men behave differently around men and women, why men are actually not afraid of intimacy, and much, much more. Check out Dr. Avroom's latest book, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. Welcome to Discover More. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Avroom, welcome to Discover More. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to talk. What has surprised you about men's psychology over your nearly 40 years of clinical practice and research? Being a man, I had the same set of misconceptions about men. And those misconceptions came from working with men and women in mixed groups. And I had no idea of how dramatically different men are in groups of just men. And that's sort of where the whole thinking started from is like, well, this is nothing like what I thought it was going to be. I sense a theme where because of either gender socializations or the fact that patriarchy presents a certain facades and frameworks of how men should behave, but then maybe within a more intimate and close circle within other men, there is no external pressures or societal pressure. So maybe they feel called to behave more authentically. I, I, I really like what you're saying, and I, but I'm going to say it a little differently. I think what I'm seeing in rooms full of men, so what I'm talking about are psychotherapy groups I do with men and only men. What I see in those rooms are the way men actually are, not covered with layers of fear and socialization. So when you work with men and women together, if you, if you ask therapists about working with men, they sort of have the same stereotypical negative things to say. They're not very emotionally fluent. They don't talk about themselves. They don't go in depth. They're not personal. And none of that is true in groups with just men. The opposite is true. I have a group of men that's been meeting for a dozen years or so. It is the only group in the 50 years I've been doing group where people look each other in the eye and say, I love you. You're an important part of my life. I've never seen that in a group before. And I routinely hear it between men. 
I do want to ask because nuances matter. And of course, there is a self-selection bias. Maybe your group of men that you're exposed to are more vulnerable or more even attuned to their emotions. How much do you think of that as skewed data versus how much of that do you think actually represents the general public, like men in business, men in certain non-academic or psychotherapeutic backgrounds? It would be easily attributed to being skewed data because I only have a biased sample. However, what we know from the research is that boys' friendships with other boys are as intimate and important to them as girls' friendships with other girls. So I would argue that what I'm seeing is really the way men, boys and men have always been, but covered with socialization. And when you give them a chance, I think grown men are as eager to be close to each other as little boys were. So let's go into behaviors and identities, since that's the undercurrents of what you're saying. I used to say this on the podcast where, as I alluded to briefly in the beginning, that patriarchy or patriarchal framework disservices men as it does with women. And of course, in inequality, sexism, prejudice, and so on, they're very explicit and obvious. But the implicit effect of patriarchy on men is much less obvious and insidious, like how men should behave a certain way. We must be manly and strong, whatever that means. Vulnerability is a weakness and so on. How does culture or gender socializations influence men's identities and behaviors from your decades of research and experiences? Well, it's the primary shaper of both men's and women's behavior. Because again, we look at little boys and they're behaving one way, and then we look at grown men and they're almost 180 degrees. So what was that? because they were biologically male when they were little boys, it ain't biology. It's clearly socialization. And we can actually, we actually know when that happens and we actually have observational research on how it happens. There's a lovely book by um, Judy Chu is a psychologist and US Congresswoman. But Chu wrote this book called When Boys Become Boys. She spent two or three years in a classroom, pre-K through first grade, hanging out with the boys and watching them. And she actually shows you the moments at which that socialization takes place. And it is a deeply disturbing book because this is a Quaker school and the school is terminally liberal. The parent, parents are strongly liberal and the school and the parents are both aware of gender role socialization and doing everything they can to stop it from happening. But the little boys create a secret club called the We Hate Girls Club. <laughs> Five and six-year-old boys. So she tells the story of watching these precious little tender, sensitive human beings become hardened, scared, restricted, suppressed young men. Well, not even young men, older boys. And it's just awful to read about. It's just really sad because nobody wants it to happen but they're you know they're home watching youtube and whatever else they're watching and despite everyone's best efforts it happens to these kids like it happens to everybody else what have you noticed going from transition from boys to men under this societal umbrella of socializations and patriarchy and this is what a man must behave the simplest answer to your question is a story that you tells in her book at the end of the first year, all the kids are invited to lead the class in a song that they liked most, that they learned during the year. 
And this sweet little boy gets up in front of the class and he starts singing a lullaby. Mm. And almost as soon as he starts, the other boys in the front row start snickering and mocking him and making fun. And the little boy who's learned what's expected of him turns to his friends and says, I was just kidding. I was just teasing you. And then starts singing the Marine Corps anthem. So the peer pressure becomes such that there's an interesting area of research called fragile masculinity. And the idea is that women are born female, feel female, and are female. But men, boys, are born with the expectation that being a man is not something that is given to you, but something that you are required to learn. And then once learn, required to continually prove. So it's fragile masculinity in that it's always subject to any sign that you are feminine rather than male, your, your credentials as a man are subject to revocation. So then there's this terrible stress that men live with that anything they do that someone might interpret as unmasculine would cost them their status as a man. That's an interesting point because I think in 2023, the word masculinity or the concept of toxic masculinity but that aside, I think the word has been hijacked, right? It's almost yes. like there is this external lens that's been forcibly put on top of the word masculinity. And anyone that says that word, there is automatically an assumed bias that's been imposed. Yes, they're assuming that you don't like men. And, and actually, I misspoke because I'm trying to learn a new language and I'm old and it takes a while. So the, the, the term that is now being worked by the researchers I'm in community with is traditional masculinity rather than toxic masculinity. And I think it is intended to circumvent exactly what you're talking about. I want to go macro very briefly. In terms of the macro theme from your research and your private practice, did you notice like a switch over time with everything we talked about? Was it like an overnight difference? Was it gradualism? Or did you even notice this landscape that's been changing of how the society started to describe men as a certain stereotype versus trying to truly contextualize our psychology and everything in between? I think it started with the advent of feminism because the first wave or two of feminism was pretty overtly not friendly to men. And then there started emerging a more sort of integrative attempt at feminism, sort of understanding the, how men and women would both be involved in this process. So I think the sympathetic reaction towards men. I, I think it's in, I don't have the date, but maybe 20 years ago or so, the American Psychological Association set up a task force for the study of the treatment of boys and men. And it was a very hotly contested, like, why do you need to treat boys and men? They're in charge of everything. They don't have any problems. Mm. But what they looked at was that you can be in a position of privilege and power and suffer largely because you are in a privilege of power and privilege. So the, the analogy that occurred to me recently, I worked with somebody who grew, grew up in what was then Rhodesia, what is now Zimbabwe, and he was white and Jewish. So he belonged to the class of people who were the power and powerful and privileged. But this kid spent much of his childhood worried because of his majority identity made him subject so even though he was on the top of the totem pole and other people would say, I want to be where he is, 
the problem with being in that position is you are always defending your position and worried about losing it, particularly if you live in Rhodesia, South Coast, now Zimbabwe. That reminds me of what Jim Carrey said once. He said that everyone needs to be afraid of making it and becoming famous and rich. Because once you make wow. it, the only thing you can do is losing it. But yeah, if you're on the journey to pursue and attain certain milestones and accolades, because nonlinear progression is how life operates. And you can't lose it because you're in the pursuit of attainment. But if you attain it, the only alternative is you no longer have what you have. Yeah. So there's a great graphic in the book that I really like of a seesaw with a stick figure of a man on top and a stick figure of the woman at the bottom. And when I give talks, I show it to the audience and I say, what do you see? And it's like a Rorschach because some people say, well, the man's on top. And some people say, no, the woman is in the controlling position because mm. if you got one foot off the teeter-totter and if she takes the second foot off, he comes crashing back to earth. And so you see that his hierarchical position is only possible with her collusion. And if she takes the other foot off, he's got no superior position. This also reminds me of this, um, it's not an epidemic per se, but I do know that men's population has been on the decline in academia and schools yeah. and higher educations. And if you look in life. And, and in life, and if you look at yeah. social leverage, women has it in terms of mating privilege or the power of mating. Just statistically, there's more women than men. So statistically, they have the leverage. But you go deeper into higher education, of course, the Pareto law, right? The 20% usually have the resources of the 80%. And of course, yeah. we're going to have a select few men who are at the top of the hierarchy and they do have a lot of dominance over who they want to mate or who they want to choose. However, for majority of men, I don't think that's the case. No, you're absolutely right. There's a magnificent quote, which I never see being referenced, but to me, it's one of the most brilliant things that Martin Luther King ever said. And it was incredibly bold. But King said that segregation scars the soul of the perpetrated as much as the victim. It was an amazing thing for a man in his position to say, I'm sure it wasn't popular. It's sort of we have to get past stereotyping and scapegoating to look at it more systemically. It's really like just grabbing low-hanging fruit to say, well, men, they're the, they're the perpetrators of, the, of patriarchy. The, the analogy I've been using recently is men and women are together in the same rowboat. It's absolutely true that men designed the boat and built the boat to accommodate their needs. Absolutely. However, the boat is sinking and we're in it together. You could keep blaming men as we all drown, or we could get curious about how we're going to stop the boat from sinking and benefit all of us. So I do remember you saying that quote in a few interviews, and I would love for you to elaborate further, maybe like the psychological implications on the underpinnings of that quote by MLK, because I think on the surface, unless you have psychological understanding as we do, it makes sense because trauma is bidirectional. It does inflict pain on the perpetrators. By definition, that's not a political point. That's just a way that, that people are. But because this is a slippery slope we're diving into, I think context yes, will be beneficial. So we'll offer you to elaborate MLK's quote uh, through the psychological lens. It is controversial. And if your show were live, your phone lines would be <laughs> ringing. I, I've experienced it. And I try to be as gentle as I can because... Women 
who have been in the one down position on the teeter-totter are often quite offended by someone saying, well, men are being damaged by the same system. They're like, I don't, one, I don't believe you, and two, I don't care. And so the most interesting and gratifying part of this work has been the reaction of women. 52% of the people who read my posts are women. Interesting. Only 48%. Isn't that not what you'd expect? I mean, a lot of the stories are directed in the title towards men. It's 52%. And I had another experience. I did a two-day workshop with men and women together. And then four months later, did another two-day workshop with the same people. In the intervening four months, it was overwhelmingly the women who had made the biggest changes in their relationship. And the reason they did was that they'd been angry at their partner for years or decades, assuming that his lack of responsiveness was a lack of interest. So they would make overtures for greater connection, greater intimacy, and the men would withdraw. And so it's a reasonable to conclusion to say they're not interested. Understanding that the withdrawal is a response to fear is really sometimes a game changer for women because it opens the door to compassion. And somewhere in that, I also sense interpretations of communications, where when women see men's emotions, because for men, of course, primary emotion is fear for all humans, and anger is often secondary emotions. Yes. Now, do you feel like uh, psychophysiologically, men are more prone to expressing their fear through anger? And I think a lot of women, as they should, are very adverse to anger, of course, Anger implies violence. Anger implies a lot of situations. It might trigger their past trauma or relational trauma. So how can, not just we, but how can all of us take some ownership and maybe counteract the sinking boat analogy? Well, I, I think right from, the, right from the start of understanding that there's no such thing, if you're heterosexual, then there's no such thing as women saving themselves from the boat by themselves. It's not, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. So if we made the mess together, even if men designed the boat and built it, it's still going to take men and women. So there's a old feminist scholar whose name is Dorothy Dinnerstein. She wrote a book called The Mermaid and the Minotaur. And she makes this really radical statement, which is hard to wrap your mind around. But Dinnerstein says ending the patriarchy is not going to be a political movement. doesn't matter how much we do. It's never going to happen. She said, the only thing that will under patriarchy is when men are equally involved in the rearing of childhood emotionally. When children's attachment are equal to men and women, that's what will change men being afraid of women, and that's what will change the patriarchy. That's like the idea that change must occur from within, because I think people forget that the macro is comprised of the micro. Because if you view the system as this totalistic monstrosity, there's no hope. Oh, how can the machine ever change? But if you really think about it, if individual decision makers change, over time, that changes the system because macros comprise the micro. This has been the debate in our field. One of the advantages, disadvantages of being around a long time is I remember <laughs> when I started training and the big thing then was family therapy. And I trained with the people who trained with Carl Whitaker. So that, you know, Whitaker in his career stopped seeing individuals and basically said it's unethical to treat individuals because their families are just going to change them back and you're wasting your time. Mm. I think that's half the truth. 
The other half of the truth is any time you change one part of a system, it puts pressure on the rest of the system to adapt to the changes. So changing individuals is the way to change. But to implement change, you must contextualize one person first. Absolutely. Which means understanding. So I want to go into your interview with Matchmaking Company that I really enjoyed and prep for today's conversation. In that interview, you said that most people in 2023 spend more effort and time complaining about men than actually are trying to understand men. And as we talked about, understanding has to be the common vehicle. Otherwise, where is the boat going, right? I worked with a woman once who was morbidly obese. And she would tell me these stories that I was horrified. I'd never heard. I had no idea. But she said to me that as she was walking down the street on a regular basis, people would like just say horribly cruel, vulgar things to her. They didn't know her. Strangers walking by. And what she taught me is that overweight people are a socially acceptable prejudice. We don't mind people saying horribly mean things about overweight people, shockingly so. But I would say to you that men have become that, that men are a group that we don't mind saying horribly mean, negative, critical things about, and nobody seems to mind. And for example, I just read a book, an edited book, that's written by a woman therapist and designed to help women therapists who want to work with men. This is great. This is exactly what we need. I'm so excited. I read the first chapter, and the first chapter basically says, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but not much. <laughs> men are not very emotionally fluent, and they're kind of concrete, so insight-oriented therapy probably won't be that helpful to them. You should probably sort of dumb it down and give them concrete behavioral. And I spoke with the author who's becoming a colleague of mine and said, that's one of the most demeaning things I've ever read. Can you imagine if you had written that about African-American clients or Asian clients, or if you had said, well, they're not that sharp, so you kind of got it. But these conversations go on all the time and people talking about men as if they were sort of disabled children and not really sophisticated enough to talk about their feelings so we should just give them sort of solution-oriented therapies. And I, I'm, I'm horrified by that kind of attitude. Here's a quick break from today's episode. To prepare for my conversation with Dr. Avram Weiss, given his esteemed psychologist background, I wanted to do something different and stay away from my usual morning caffeine routine. Coffee is great, but the spike of caffeine usually very short-lasting and it does not like, last too long. But I'm a big fan of Magic Mind because it has three primary ingredients. It's got matcha, which boosts your energy, adaptogens, helps you relax, and also neotropics, which keeps you focused. So with a shot of this, I'll be in an optimal brain, wavelength, and headspace for my conversation. Cheers. Tastes pretty good. Tastes like a healthy boost drink that has all the upsides I talked about. And with that, back to the episode, and I hope you enjoy today's wide-ranging conversation with D, Doctor of Room Weiss. So because there is so much pervasive narrative and misinformations and stereotypes, it's, all, it's very difficult for an individual to counter that force because culture is massive, right? Yes. So if we go pragmatic for a second, what can individuals do to truly foster this understanding and what can we contribute individually because the culture, as you said, has been established and the change is possible. 
but change takes tremendous effort. So first of all, we know that men are socialized to not ask for help. So that's a big problem. So when they're in, you know, they don't go for colonoscopies, they don't go for annual <laughs> physical, and they don't go to therapy. But they're also not going to therapy in part because they're taught not to seek help, but because they anticipate that therapy will endorse a set of values that is not friendly to men. Whereas in the jargon, we say it will not be gender sensitive care. So that when I do workshops with therapists, I like to ask them, how many of you think would endorse the values that in psychotherapy, patients should be more open, more vulnerable, more emotionally disclosing, and all their hands go up. I said, well, so when you meet with a new patient who's a man, do you ask him whether he endorses those values or whether he's mm. interested in treatment? And they're, no, of course they don't. They just bring their, which is the definition of prejudice, of course, they just bring their prejudice and then they wonder why they're not connecting with the men because they didn't have the respect to stop and ask them, well, what would be a reasonable or, or a relevant or meaningful goal to you? They just start on the path that they know. And again, I think if they were working with a minority patient, they wouldn't do that. They would have gone to seminars on don't put your cultural values on other people. Don't assume, you know, why don't we afford that same respect to men? And in fact, APA, when they published their guidelines to working with men and boys in psychotherapy, say very clearly, you have to educate. If you want to work with men, you have to learn about gender social, gender role socialization, because otherwise you will see through the lens of individual pathology rather than understanding the context that shapes men to be that way. So you'll say, oh, he has an anger management problem, as opposed to saying, well, maybe, but let's peel back some of the roles of the gender socialization first then see what we have. And that speaks to context. And that reminds me of the book, The Role Less Traveled by M. Scott. Obviously, he's a great thinker, a psychiatrist, psychotherapist. In that book, he talks about, especially for men, seeking psychotherapy, which implies that you're voluntarily choosing to cut open your heart and expose the deepest secrets and the deepest skeletons to a stranger who happens to be professionally trained. And by that definition, seeking therapy is one of the most courageous things to do because A, it's great discomfort, and B, to do that, you have to go through so many obstacles, so much pain. But at the end of the day, it's only courageous in face of fear. In absence of fear, it's not courageous. Absolutely. And, and what you said to describe psychotherapy is true. Honestly, it's true of a fairly small percentage of people's therapies. Most people are not talking about their greatest secrets and secrets and fears. They're talking about much more everyday things. So it doesn't require that kind of stripping naked. It's a much more everyday. And people take it, you know, as the relationship develops, they feel more comfortable and they say more. So it doesn't, I think that's the image particularly in, in movies and things, you know, the breakthrough, cathartic moment. And there's a lot of sort of meat and potatoes that goes into that that's pretty ordinary, that's less threatening. Yeah, and I think to have a great eureka moment, which means I found it, I think requires great commitment because your output is predicated on the amount of input. And like I've had so many men and women patients in my psychotherapy work 
where they terminate, they discontinue because of maybe we're getting closer to their inner realities than they were comfortable with. And then they always say, oh, psychotherapy, pseudoscience, it doesn't work. And of course, rapport matters and the relationship between myself and the particular clients and patients matter. That's a baseline. And if I think there is a stable and strong rapport between us, I call them out because I don't think anyone wants a yes man and yes woman. Because psychotherapy is supposed to incite this comfort to make you re-examine and review the archives of your behaviors and patterns, right? But to do that, it requires commitment. So I'm with you, but I, I don't want people to be daunted about. Uh, I don't want people to think that that you know great cataclysmic effort is required. I mean, if if you're willing to show up and talk about yourself, you will get a lot out of therapy. And there are many people who go through an entire therapy without ever talking about certain issues. And my response is always to say, I did my dissertation on privacy and psychotherapy, the value of not talking about something until you're ready to talk about it. There are a lot of things that people either don't bring up because they're not ready to, or they may bring it up later, or they may not, and still get a lot of help. And I think the other thing that when men work together in a group, it's sort of shocking to hear the values change. So there was just last night I had a group and one of the guys starts talking about what you're talking about, how hard it is to open up and how important that is and make an investment in the group. And I reminded him that he came to the group saying, I want to learn how to be more open and talk about Mm. my feelings. Now he's the spokesperson for it. You know, now he's instructing newer members on how this is important to do. And there's something about the group context, I think, which sets a different set of norms. And then you have people who are emulating a different set of norms, which is part of why group can be so helpful. Yeah, well received. I appreciate the nuances because safety matters. Absolutely. And the great thing about psychotherapy is it's a one of many vehicles for change. Reading books Absolutely. has similar effect, even though reading books is a dying art in the current era of short form media. At the same time, there's modalities like EMDR. You don't even need to talk about your trauma, right? You use this bilateral brainwave movements. So that's why I love therapy because it's a buffet of many different flavors. And if you feel called to at least pick a vehicle because that's how you go from point A to point B. Yeah. And we also know from the research that although they all look very different, or they all say they are very different. What actually goes on in the room is remarkable. Right. It's like you can have Japanese food or pizza, but they all come out the same way, <laughs> more yeah, or less yeah. so. So let's go into the, the meat of your research in the last decade, trying to foster a deeper understanding of what men's psychology is truly like versus what the society and culture is saying they are. Why are men afraid of women and intimate relationships? And what are they afraid of? There are a number of theories, but um, the one that makes the most sense to me is that because, and I think this is maybe less true now, but still largely true, children are, their primary attachment as infants and babies is with a woman. And in workshops, I like to show the videos from the still face experiment, which is where the mother is instructed to just not be responsive for a period of time. And the babies are very distraught, even including losing bowel and bladder control within a couple of minutes, not by their moms being mean or critical, but just not responding. We're highly dependent and we're highly 
honed in on any interruption in attachment with mom. Talking about boy babies now, obviously girl babies too. But the difference is that girl babies, if they're heterosexual, don't marry a woman. Boy babies, if they're heterosexual, do grow up and marry a woman, which elicits and recapitulates the same dynamics of extreme distress at any threatened interruption in attachment. So you hear men talk all the time about how obsessively preoccupied they are with whether or not their partner is upset. This is like the be all and end all for many men. And they'll work their behavior around monitoring their spouse. And every man who's listening to this now is nodding their head <laughs> and knows exactly what I'm talking about. I had a guy tell me once that he could tell what his wife was upset with him when he walked in the house before he saw her. He could feel it in the air. So like it's almost the, and, and I, I believe him that because men are so concerned because one of the bottom deepest level fears is abandoned. And so many men have not had many positive experience of conflict with conflict. So I like to ask guys, do you think makeup sex is real? Or do you think it's something that's just in the movies? And most of the time they say, it's not real. Because they haven't had an experience, whether it's sexual or not, they haven't had an experience of a really good fight that clears the air and leaves two people feeling much, much closer to each other. They mostly experience conflict, which makes things worse and makes them feel hopeless and like, why did I do that? It's not any good to fight. It just makes things. And a lot of them will say overtly, I don't want to fight because it just, I don't want to bring anything up. I don't want to talk about what I'm feeling because it just makes things worse. So they recapitulate with a woman the exact same dynamics they experienced with a child. And then just one more piece to add to it, how many men don't have any other intimate relationship with men or women? So they've, as one person said to me, men outsource all of their needs for emotional closeness with one person. And so it's, it's make or break. It's life or death. It's everything. And so it's way more pressure than the relationship can sustain. And so they have the same conflict repeatedly playing out that issue in ways that neither one of them are aware of what's going on. There is a concept in Korea, uh, which is my ethnicity. It's called third space, which is the first space is work. The second space is home. And the third space is a safe container where you have this communal, relational, that's outside of work and home, where it's a place for people to express their feelings or emotions and to just bond relationally. And if you look at women, they have third spaces, plenty of yeah. them, right? Yes. But for men, it could be a barbershop, which is a first proxy therapeutic experience for a lot of men, because barbershops are great, or basketball, or maybe over bars. Because having relationships and having meaningful relationships is a huge difference. Because I worked at USC as a psychotherapist. So I saw anyone from undergraduate to PhD level. And every single man patient of mine struggle with relationships. And they came with adjustments uh, disorder or adjustment issues, all for romantic relationships and breakups. And all of them affirms and research support this where most men don't have a third space, which is exactly what you're alluding to. I really like what you're saying. And if they don't have a third space in college, they are certainly not going to have one when they leave college because college is the most 
set up, teed up, easy to have a third space you're ever going to have in your life. If you don't have it there, it's really unlikely that you're going to have it where you go back to your little apartment and everybody's in their little apartment. And, and it is incredibly critical. Um, Aldous Huxley, who wrote the book Islands, and in his utopia, every family, every kid had a second family that lived within mm. walking distance. And anytime you were in a fuss with your mom or your dad, or you just were sick of them, you didn't even have to ask their permission. You just went to the Joneses' house and had dinner and spend the night, whatever you wanted. And your mom didn't even worry about you because if you didn't come home for dinner, you were at the Joneses and she knew you were, they were taking good care of you. And that was that third space in your words. And it was built in. I think there is a very far few subsets of universal truth. But if you look at a lot of indigenous cultures across the world, that's already embedded. Every yes. family has like a godson or sort of adopted family. And that's the effect of third space. But it seems like Western culture is very far behind in that sense. And the effect is clear. In Judaism, if you experience a loss, there's a set of prescribed prayers that have to do with mourning. You say them every day for a year. But the interesting part is you are not allowed to say those prayers alone. Mm. You have to have nine other people with you. So you're commanded to say the prayers. And you're not allowed to say them alone. So for the first year after a death, you have to be with a community of other people focusing on your loss every day for the first year. And that's similar to Blue Zone. I love, I mean, who doesn't like longevity, right? And Blue Zones are about five to six pockets in the world where average lifespan is 100, 110. And one of is in, in Japan. And from the documentary that I watched, one of the core ingredients of Blue Zone is also third space. All of them have like big brother, big sister. Since yeah. you've been moved into the community, they assign you one. With all the examples we talked about Judaism or Japan or blue zones or indigenous culture, it sounds like these ancient wisdom has always recognized the power of this community. And if you look at depressions, right? Like lack of meaningful relationships is the best predictor of your future mental health and health crisis. I'm going to make a completely unsubstantiated and uh, <laughs> provocative. So men live on an average of seven years less than women. I think that's why. Hmm. We know that loneliness is as big a risk for early mortality as smoking cigarettes. So I think it is the lack. I love your language. I hadn't heard that before. I think it is the lack of connection, the lack of third space that is the cause. And men colleague of mine is working on what he calls the moonshot mission. If you take those seven years and you multiply it, so if, if you could figure out how to get men to live as long as women, that would save more lives than curing cancer. That's how big a problem it is. And of course, there's nuances of men are more prone to risky behaviors. I know that's a contributing factor. But if you look at research, and you, you talked about this in your interview with The Meaningful Life with Alex G, where as of now, today, there's two groups with the highest suicide rate, middle-aged men. And that's a lot of that is because once they retire or once they leave their first base of work, they miss that meaning or they miss that purpose. But the second group is adolescent teenage girls because of social media, unrealistic beauty standards. They also have very high suicide rate because of social media usages. But for this conversation, of course, we're focusing on men. But like suicide 
is an entirely preventable public health crisis. And of course, death is designed by birth, but it's really pervasive. And a lot of people forget that how lonely men are internally and externally. And men successfully commit suicide three times more often than women. And so, yes, among the early premature deaths from men are often grouped under the heading deaths of despair. And their death by their own hands, their death by addiction, their death by violent acts, their death by high-risk behavior. You can see the thread. You, you were talking about men engaging in more high-risk behavior. I don't know. Perhaps if they had that third space, somebody in their life would say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, cut it out. That, that maybe it would be grounded and curtailed if they were in communities of people. Like, I think people who go out and drive 120 miles an hour while drinking probably are not with somebody else. Probably didn't call a friend and saying, I'm thinking about driving 120 miles an hour after drinking. What do you think? Is that a good idea? I, I don't think that happens. So let's, speaking of spaces, since third space is harder, but then I think second space of home or marriages, relationships, let's go down that train. So like a room, like how do most men approach dating and how much is that is learned behavior full circle into the realm of, oh, men are afraid of commitment. Men don't want intimacy, which we know that is not true. Right there. Absolutely. Categorically, unequivocally, <laughs> not true. And obviously, I feel strongly about that because I think that um, it's a myth that women have bought into and led them to have a, a pretty significant series of misunderstandings about men, which really skew the whole dating process. So there's a difference between not wanting something and wanting it to be scared. Mm. It's a pretty fundamental, but that is hard to do when you're scared. Curiosity is sort of one of the first things to go when you're scared. Right. And that's part of what women, I think, can learn reading this book and talking with men is, you know, if a scared little child came up to them, they would not be critical. They would sort of get down on the kid's level. They would talk softly to them. What's the matter? What are you scared about? And men are not children. I don't mean to imply that. But anybody who's scared, child or an adult, responds really well to patience tenderness, lack of expectation. You know, all human beings respond well. And to be fair, all adults are grown children, just like all parents are grown children parenting for the first time. And it is true, though, because through age, we're just picking up more idiosyncrasies, more biases, more instilled beliefs, social narratives, more behaviors, conditioning. At the same time, like the aside from inner child, it is true at the on a fundamental level, fear is fear and unknown is unknown. And a lot of men are children in terms of their dating, intimate lack of relationships or lack of experiences. That's why I wanted to say it on the like jokes aside, I do want to put down a messaging board because like fear does get manifest externally based on anger and defense for a lot of men, as we talked about earlier. And of course, men also have to own up to responsibilities to be less critical of ourselves and others, and also less judgment or curiosity is bi-directional. It's for both men and women. Absolutely. And it's hard to do. And it's hard to do in part because of all the gender role messages that we both send both men and women and tell them how to be. And most of what we're telling them is not helpful in relationships. And so they have to sort of learn 
a different set of skills. And then they feel a little embarrassed about that because they would say like, well, you know, what y'all taught me is not working in my marriage, but this is working in my marriage. I kind of don't want to tell the other guys about it because they're going to think that I'm, you know, not a real man, that I'm being cooperative and learning and humbling myself. But guess what? It's really working. And speaking of relationships, I have room to have a relationship. The second space, you need to go on the first date. And would you, or I have a specific questions and going back to your interview with the dating company, that's my favorite interview you've done uh, based on my research. Thank you. I will tell them you said that. Yeah, yeah. Very it was very fluid and very well prepared. And I could tell you to have great rapport and great relationships. So you share two guiding questions that you recommend all men to ask themselves after the first date. How did you feel from the date? And the second question is, did you like the version of yourself on the date? Why these two specific questions? And feel free to add anything. I want to say, first of all, those are not just questions for men. Those are questions for anybody. I think those questions apply equally. So the problem that people make on date is it becomes like a job interview. Hmm. In a job interview, you're trying to present the best picture of yourself, but you probably are paying very little attention to the job. You're so preoccupied with selling yourself that you're not even stopping to notice what would it be like to work here? And usually people go back and do that in a second. But what's going to determine the success or failure of your time there, your happiness there, is, this, is that, is what it was like for you to be there. And so it's something that people balk at. But I would say, I love you means I love the me I am when I'm with you. And I am completely different because when I'm with you, like this is a great interview because you are a lot of times the interviews just sort of take the top layer off and they get the, the sort of sound bite me, they, right? But you're inviting me to go much deeper. I'm, I'm not schizophrenic. I'm not multiple personality. I'm just in a relationship now that's inviting parts of me. So I would talk to you again anytime because I like how I feel in this experience. So it's the same as a date. You know, people go off on the, the most esoteric, odd details. Does he, well, obvious ones like, you know, how much money does he make? How does she look or what? But, but they miss the basic, like, you didn't say if you had a good time. Did you enjoy yourself? Did you have fun? It's pretty straightforward. It's a lot simpler. If you had a good time, who wouldn't go back if you had a good time? And then really what determines whether or not you're having a good time is if you liked how you were. So if you, if you get cranky and argumentative and defensive, I don't like that part of myself. I have it. And if I go to certain political contexts, you will absolutely see that part of me. But I don't want to live there all the time. I don't mind going there occasionally. But if I'm sitting with someone and I find myself comfortable, maybe I take my shoes off, and I'm talking about things I didn't think I was going to talk. Boy, I haven't thought about that in years. I feel so comfortable talking to you. That's a great first day. And it's interesting because in my line of work or in interpersonally, a lot of men ask questions about, I wonder how she felt. And even with your questions, the undercurrent is the I statement. And I want to dovetail into another thing you said in passing in different interview where you talked about only we are responsible for our own feelings. Feelings is not external, it's not predicated, is how do I feel? And but then going back to what I said, 
so many men are caught up worrying about because, as you said, they're worrying about curating the perfect versions so they can get to the second date. But if you didn't enjoy the first date and if you're glossing over how you felt in the first date, who cares about the sec? Like, who cares if how they felt? Like, where are you in this equation? You didn't enjoy it. They probably didn't enjoy it either. And so, so I worked with a guy once who set up the world's best first dates. He would spend (laughs) like a thousand dollars on a first date. He'd bring in a band and this and that and the other to people he didn't know at all. And they very rarely, almost never wanted to go back on a second date. And he was like, like, wait a minute, I gave you such a great experience. But I think if I could have met those women and talked to them, they would have said it was too much. Didn't feel real. Why is he giving this to me? He doesn't even know who I am. It's not, it's not genuine. It's not authentic. Whereas people sometimes have great dates going for a walk together or, or whatever just doing something. I always suggest to people, invite other people to do things you like to do, but see, they try to figure out what the other person wants to do. And they, but you're not going to be truly yourself there. You're going to be awkward and uncomfortable. So if you like to play bridge, see if she likes to play bridge. If you like to go hike in the mountains, invite her to come hike in the mountains. If you like to go to the movies, be yourself. I do want to criticize men for a quick second. Where Okay, I'll... I'll tolerate it. I'm likely to respond. So a lot of men, I think we pride our identities, our our proclivity towards being logical or rational, right? We almost wear that as a badge, as an armor. Oh, I'm logical, I'm rational. But if you really think about logos or logic, being logical is doing what's the most optimal based on the circumstances at hand. That's logic by pure definition. So if men knows that women value intimacy, vulnerability, authenticity, if we know how we have these data points of how one prefer. So what's the logical thing to do? It's not logical to do things that you see fit that's not aligned and mismatched with women's preferences. True logic will be doing what's most optimal for both parties involved. And I think we need to redefine what logical means because being logical yeah. does not mean aligned with your way of thinking. That's not logic. That's just subjective biases. What's logical is what is the circumstances at hand? Oh, this woman seems like she values intimacy, real experiences that's not highly curated. Then be logical by doing that because that's going to incite or induce the best outcome. I'm with you, Anna, but I want to broaden it a little bit. I don't <laughs> think it's just women who like intimacy. I think men like intimacy just as much as women. And so when you go with that, it's not just responding to what someone else wants it's what so one of the things i like to ask couples when they get involved in these esoteric you know oh this will never work because she likes to vacation on the beach and i like to vacation the mountains it's like (laughs) which i hear you know and and i say to them you know what do you think couples like long-term couples spend most of their time doing not sex not going on vacation it's hanging out and doing nothing it's just reading the paper together, watching a TV show, hanging out with another couple. It's just very ordinary, everyday. So if you want to find some out, if you're going to commit match with somebody, don't take them to the Four Seasons because you're not going to be going there very often. Take them to, to ordinary, everyday life experiences because that's what makes a relationship. It's pretty ordinary stuff. And I think it's the stark contrast of the ordinary that makes it extraordinarily shine, right? Like the power of awe and the power of mindfulness 
will lose its essence if everyone's mindful and if everything is all. Figure ground, right? It's the old Gestalt figure ground experiment. Exactly. Yeah. And also a level deeper is like, if you have fear that you do not like your versions of yourself, what makes you think that the other person will like the version that you curated that's misaligned with who you are? Well, I think you've said a lot there because I think, unfortunately, what happens for a lot of men, so I'll take the first layer of this and then go a little deeper with it. I think what happens for a lot of men is that they don't really like who they are. And you know the old saying about you complete me <laughs> makes me a little nervous. But I think underneath that in a more profound way, which is, is that men often wonder, they're really worried that there is really something wrong with that they are fundamentally, and I know about this from my own experience. My dad died when I was quite young, 27. And I always knew that I would give the eulogy. I was very close to my dad. My biggest fear was not that I would cry. My biggest fear is I wouldn't cry. Mm. And I thought, don't cry, giving the eulogy for your dad, you are a hopeless case. You are just a cold, heartless. And I was worried that that would happen. Well, thank God. I sobbed through the entire thing. The rabbi tried to pull me away because I loved my dad and he was dead. And I was flooded with feelings. I, the biggest feeling I felt was really, I am a human being. I am a, a normal person with feelings. I may not be as in touch with them as I'd like to be, but there's not something fundamentally wrong. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah, I think the highest form of grief is loss of a parent. And uh, so I appreciate you sharing. And yeah, there's, there's so much there, right? Because like, how can we change this process? How can we incite a change to really flip this narrative on its head? And I really love what you said, right? Life is comprised of the mundane and life is comprised of what repeats. So let's get those repeated things right. And even like the word exponential growth, compounding, iterations, what iterates is what you put in. Right. For the compounding to take place, you have to start the compounding. So if you really want to be engaged in a long, intentional, committed, intimate relationships, you have to get those repeated mundane things right. And that's the power of mundane. Yeah. Out of anxiety, out of, you know, that I don't really, I'm not so confident that I am a person is all that compelling and interesting, but I can provide these things, which I'm hoping will distract you and you won't notice that. Maybe I am not as well. But I, I also want to say that almost every woman alive knows that. Almost every woman alive knows, you know, women have jokes like men are not off the rack. You know, you got to take it to the tailor and, ha and have it altered. Wow. They don't expect us to be. And that's sort of part of what they grew up with. And so men are so worried to show that, but women already know it. And they anticipate that it's going to take some patience and take some time. But they're looking for a man who's a good person to make an investment with. Like, if I am patient with you on this, you will grow into it. And this is the evolutionary biology and psychiatry, right? Where selections and reproductions, so women know to maximize their reproductions. Of course, not all women are interesting to have kids. There are nuances. But for most, if they want to be a parent, biologically and psychologically, they're going to go for the most compatible mates that will be there for their children to become healthy adults in the society. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that is a lot of what is attractive. Because again, what I said about relationships being mundane and ordinary, 
that's like 10 times more true if you have children. You're not going anywhere. You know, you're, it's going to be home working side by side doing it's pretty labor intensive. And so, yeah, you, you better enjoy that process of doing something really difficult together. because That's a lot of what parenting is. So as we talked about this entire conversations that it takes two to tango. And yes, men, we built a boat. That's the patriarchy, patriarchal framework. But the women are part of this boat, right? That's, that's sinking. I want to go into that realm. And I do want to bring women into the conversations uh, because my listeners are pretty evenly split, surprisingly, since podcast listeners tend to be more male-dominated. I didn't know that. So in your interview, once again, you talked about that most women categorize men into this black and white camps of good guys and bad guys based on their relational trauma, relational experiences or hurt in the past, which is fine because defense mechanism is there to protect you. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I do want to pull in MLK Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote, since you shared one earlier. It's my favorite quote of his. Everybody is a saint and a sinner, which talks about the nuances and this idea yeah. that we can be both privileged and have us oppre not oppressed but have don't back off of saying men are oppressed i know it's controversial but men are oppressed by the same you can be in charge and on top and be oppressed by the system that puts you in charge and on top i'm glad you yeah. said it <laughs> yeah i know send the hate mail to me it won't be the first um, men in our culture, masculinity is defined by the absence of feminine. So what we say to young men is, you can have access to all this power and privilege, but you have to renounce any part of yourself that we associate with feminism, which means warmth, intimacy, closeness, vulnerability, friendship, all the best stuff in life. You get to be in charge, you get to row the boat, but you don't get to be close with anybody, you don't get to connect with your inner self, you don't get to be reflective, you don't get to be tender, you have to be tough, on guard, in charge all the time. That's the choice that we give to young men, and I think they carry the wound from that forced choice. I think all adult men are suffering from the wound of that choice. And it reminds me of a metaphor of trauma armor. A lot of veterans, they, they have to build up calluses to protect them from the hurt and the trauma. Yes. And a lot of us wear trauma armors and armors around or relational armor for a lot of men. But if you become very literal, let's, talk, let's think about this metaphor. When you go to a battle, since I'm a veteran, you have to wear body armors. You have to have weapons, armory. Makes sense that you need that. But when you get back home from the warfare, you have to take off the armor. Just like responsibility or work ethics or integrity, it's like double-edged sword. If you're too responsible, everyone else suffers. But if you're too diligent, always responsible, you suffer because you don't know how to relax and because life is season and it ebbs and flows. All defenses have the same characteristics. We use them because they work and then they stop working and then they become counterproductive. But if you go back in the history, you can see why a person adapted that defense. People aren't crazy. They don't do stuff that doesn't help. They do stuff that helps. The problem is then adapting your defenses because you become very good at them. 
because they work so well, and then adapting. So for many men, the defense that they're socialized into their first layer of defense is withdrawal. When they get flooded, they work to manage their own emotional stimulation by trying to control the emotional tone of the conversation. So men say the things to women like, just be calm, just be rational, you're so hysterical. They're not trying to change the woman. It's not a power move. It's a, I don't know how else to calm myself down. As long as you're this emotional, I'm so flooded, I have no idea what to do. It's the projections of their fear and their self-perceived inadequacies. Yeah, it's a projection and it's also a response to how stimulated they feel in an intimate relationship with another person who's being openly emotional. After having learned how to be emotionally suppressed and then being with somebody who's openly emotional is destabilizing, it's uncomfortable. That also reminds me of the concept that I love, post-traumatic growth. A lot of people talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very pervasive in my veteran communities that I'm very passionate about. And that's why psychedelics are great. The emer emerging science is amazing. A lot of people forget about the other set of the equations because life is suffering, Buddhism's first noble truth, right? And life is suffering, but the most profound and integrated growth and opportunities and change comes from trauma and pain. And to seek out and benefit from post-traumatic growth, you have to be willing to put on the armor when it's appropriate, but also take off the armor when it's appropriate. Because it's all about regulations and misregulations. Well, this is, of course, the challenge of the current young people generation, is that the critique of them has been the helicopter pairing, parenting and the emotional overprotection of their children. And so these kids are often lacking in the life experiences which would teach them resilience, post-traumatic growth, because their parents are so carefully shepherding them that they're not getting to stub their toes or be overwhelmed. I remember my son played uh, soccer a lot of his childhood, and we had a game where it was pouring the entire game, just a sea of mud. And one of the parents said something so interesting to me. He said, well, this is the game. Games like this, where you see the kids who are mutters and the kids who are not. And what he meant is some kids are just going to like, oh, can't do this. It's muddy. And some kids are going to just see the mud as something to get through and learn and grow from being in a challenging environment. Yeah. Under current of that is Carol Dweck's research, growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right? And this is a reason why this topic is so complicated because we're not just dealing with patriarchy. We're not just dealing with gender socializations. We're dealing with parenting because Gen Y, who was under the boomers, they were under supervised. So when they became the parents, now they're over supervising. And there's so many variables, there's so many forces. It's such a complicated. And once again, people are addicted to certainties because nobody likes nuances and complexity. Right. I mean, it goes back because I'm a baby boomer and boomers <laughs> were under guys. And so we overparented our kids. And yeah, it just keeps. You know. So let's, uh, t for the last part of the uh, interview of Room, I do want to get practical. With your past decade and counting of this hyper specialization into men's dating and men's psychology, like how can we extrapolate your approach? beyond container of intimate relationships, because I think we provide a lot of context, 
and hopefully we're able to reel back some of the societal misinformations and misnarratives. But do you see any ways we can extrapolate this beyond intimate relationships? Because as I often tell my friends on the podcast, I love relationships, even as a psychotherapist, and romantic or not, just relationship, because there is no other container reveals more about yourself and your relationship with the self than relationships. The cutting edge, which is going to change things in the world, is men's relationship with men and men's relationship with children. So it's clear to me that that the first part of this work for most men is talking with other men. It's less threatening than talking with other women. They feel more comfortable opening up and being more vulnerable. And so one of the chapters that I'm happiest with in the book is sort of a how-to for men who might like to find other men to get together with and have more personal, intimate conversations. What I basically suggest is just use the book as a book club to start. <laughs> like people will be less threatened saying, you want to come to this book club and then read the book. And I think that that will naturally open up a lot of really interesting conversation. And hopefully that will then become a community of men who get together regularly and talk in more personal, open ways with each other. And then I think the other cutting edge for men has to do with their relationship with their children. My son had two-year-old twins four years ago, my son and daughter-in-law, obviously he didn't have them. And when I go to see them and I'm in a room full of 20 families with young kids and a kid starts fussing, 99% of the time it is the young dads who get up to go into it. And the moms do what dads used to do, which is they just keep right on with their conversation with their friends, because it's not only that the men are doing it, the men have been doing it, and the women have come to count on it and know he's got it, and they're not worried about it. When I see that, I think this is it. This is how the world would change. If men, I always say to guys, you know, guys are like, well, we got a new baby, and my wife's getting up in the middle of the night because I got to get up and go to work. I'm like, you're an idiot. Because the single most intimate time you are going to have with your child, probably the only unsupervised time you're going to have with your child is the middle of the night. You don't want to give that up. When your kid gets up in the middle of the night, you go get him. That's where you will really feel connected. So men being interested, which seems to be happening. I remember when I had my children and had to change them on dirty sinks in McDonald's because there were no changing rooms in men's room. And the first time I saw a diaper changing station at a McDonald's, I cried. I was like, oh, my God, somebody is finally recognizing that I've been changing diapers. On mm. Nasty. And maybe the world is ready for dads to be fathers. I have a, this is partially a joke, but I'll love your intake very briefly, where one of my favorite memes or things going on on the Internet is about dads being dads with their kids like throwing them in the air right like maybe having some playfully riskful behaviors that moms may not condone but i do want to say that aside from being really funny and there's a lot of truth in that right since stereotypes do have a uh, certain ounces of validity i do really feel like for children it's very important for like diversity right different type of parenting different type of primary attachment styles since attachment exactly. styles evolve and shift and our best evolutionary trait is our ability to adapt. That's why Homo sapiens survived versus Neanderthals and other species didn't. At the same time, I really do think 
it's important for both parents, but especially for a man that as you talked about, like age zero to two and then two to seven is so critical. It's literally called a critical window in, psych- in our literature. And it would right. be a shame if they choose work over these once in a lifetime opportunity because every babies are aged zero to two only once and there's always going to be a work. I think there's two sides of that. I completely agree with you. It would be a shame for the kid and it would be a shame because I can't tell you how many men I have worked with who come to see me and they're not estranged from their kids, but they're not close. And it's so beautiful to watch them develop a close relationship with their kids. And of course, their kids are thrilled. And the men are so much happier and and feel so much better about themselves because it's sort of a big part of life to miss out on. With everything we talked about, do you feel like is there any other really important message you want to share on a messaging board? Uh, to close us out with this very insightful and I think very, very important conversation that most are either choosing not to have it or are unaware of this importance. I would say to men and women, don't give up. If you're in a relationship in which you feel like you're just going through the same thing again and again and again, sometimes you just have to take one step out of that paradigm for things to go very differently. And this step of understanding the fear that's behind that unending can really just even understanding that can really change what follows. And so hang in there and see if this idea doesn't change things in your relationship. And that's very hopeful because for a paradigm shift to be possible, there has to be an emerging new paradigm and horizon, right? And now we do have an emerging new paradigm Maybe 40 years ago, it would have been very difficult for a paradigm shift, yep. but now it is possible. And I appreciate the hope, the hope in that message. You're very welcome. I enjoyed talking with you very much. Uh, where can they discover more about where to connect with you? What are your publications and everything in between? Pretty much everything is on my web- website, which is Avram Weiss, PhD, A-V-R-U-M-W-E-I-S-S-P-H-D.com. You'll find my books there. You can find a mailing list if you want to read what I write on psychology today and past articles and all kinds of things like that. So you pretty much find what you're looking for there. A room has an ocean's depth of writing. So for any readers out there, strongly recommend. I just want to ask you for one favor before you leave. If you can share this episode with one friend, if you discover more something insightful that you think benefits your life, it's free for you, but priceless for the podcast's growth. And with that being said, I'd love to bring you back for round two of Room because there are so many other questions we didn't get to today. I'd be happy to. Yeah. and We can uh, talk more about the women's side of the equation when we talk again. Uh, that would be great. And there's so much more interesting research that you have. But I appreciate your time today.